and welcome to the Neurodivergence and Mental Health Podcast. My name is Sally Nilsson and I'm a psychotherapist, published author, public speaker and mum. I discovered my autism and ADHD aged 56 in March 2021 and having rewritten my life story, I'm on a quest to advocate for neurodivergent community. I hope you enjoy listening to my incredible guests sharing their experiences of autism, ADHD, dyslexia, dyspraxia, dyscalculia, Tourette's and OCD. We talk about growing up, education, work and personal stories and how mental health has played its part in shaping lives. Our conversations cover spectrums, traits, challenges, acceptance and successes. So sit back, relax and find out what it means to feel, think and be different in a neurotypical world. Please note that for this episode there will be mention of suicide and surgical procedures. Thank you. Very nice to meet you Paul. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. And um, what, I, what I normally like to do, if it's okay, is uh, just ask you to introduce yourself um, in any way you want. So the floor is yours. Um, how would you like to introduce yourself today? Yeah, so my name's Paul Isaacs. I've been an advocate for around uh, 11 years and I've spoken around the UK for that amount of time as well. I've been blogging for around five or six years I believe I've authored five books around the subject of autism um, I've been a part recently of the CBeebies TV show cartoon by Paper Owl Films called Pablo which is about uh, a little boy with autism which was fantastic to be a part of as a, as a creative consultant and I continue, even though the pandemic's hit, to do um, presentations uh, around autism. Uh, I was diagnosed with autism around, yeah, 11 years ago at the age of, of 24 and OCD. And then I was diagnosed in 2012 with visual perceptual disorders. Um, hence why I've got these tints and learning difficulties. Uh, my developmental trajectory was, if I was diagnosed in the in the 80s, early 90s, it would have been a classic autism. And I didn't get in functional speech until around seven or eight years old. So it just gives you a, a, a brief outline of me and just Brilliant. a bit of my developmental history. Yeah, that's excellent. And now uh, you were, diagnosed um what, what was happening when you were a child then because this is what we're going to talk about it's about you growing up and mm. um, uh, and the school years so you know you're, you're still quite young really and you know people did know about adhd and autism um you know say i don't know 20 18 16 years ago what was happening to you during school um if we go way back until yeah, preschool um the my memories are, are, are tactile associative i suppose so all 
the the memories were funneled through through that area and later memories gain association so my mum initially thought i i was was deaf and blind around six months old but it was nothing to do with my sensory organs it was to do with perception and information processing and language processing disorders so um where when i was in that environment i could i couldn't filter language with meaning um i couldn't see with coherence uh so faces people object places etc uh, i didn't recognize my my body as a whole so all i can remember doing at preschool was running round and then sitting down and then running around and sitting down and sitting down at certain points of the day and then um coming home but in terms of language filtered language it wasn't uh it, it wasn't going in interpretively um, so just so, on the language that's quite interesting so on a day-to-day -day basis how uh, you know because people talk about um, working harder with nonverbal, um, you know, um, people now, and they're able to much better communicate. Mm. But when you were a kid and you were nonverbal, you know, what were teachers and other children, and even your mum and dad, sort of saying when you weren't able to speak? Um, so yeah, I mean, there was e there was echolalia, um, but but there wasn't functional speech. So and just say my, what echolalia is. I, I oh, know a bit uh, the, about. Uh, the echo in of words, and that is a typical stage of development that all human beings go through. It's just the fact that in my case and other people's who have a similar profile uh, case cases, it's elongated because of different information processing challenges. So uh, initially, my my parents, or particularly my mother was observing because i'm an only child and i was our first obviously uh, she's looking around the neighborhood and obviously noticing that uh, i wasn't picking up on milestones um in fact when i when i before i got up to my feet um and that was that was delayed six between 16 and 18 months uh there um she noted that i used to crawl on the floor with one arm with my legs splayed out so it, it appeared that i was physically disabled although that wasn't the case um so that was noted um there were other things that happened um which further de derailed my language um having a circumcision for example, at a young age, I was getting UTIs. I was um, in pain, and they've done. And why did you have a circumcision? Was it? Uh, it's too tight. The the foreskin was too tight. Oh, okay. And, yeah. and the what happened um, is, and they've done studies on men that have circumcisions. So this isn't completely out there or weird or strange or yeah. peculiar. Um, can go through um, issues around gender identity, um, post-traumatic stress disorder, anxiety disorders in later life, um, issues around phantom limb syndrome, because they're not able to internalize experience. And that happened to me. I had, not only did I have a circumcision, I had grommets uh, for glue ear, 
and I had an adenoid ectomy. Uh, and that seems, you know, when it's an awful thing, and I'm not, I, don't, I never want to be ableist or anything like that. But when I was younger and I did see autism around me, they always seem to have grommets and, you know, and uh, difficult speech and, mm. you know, the behavior and everything else. And it just seemed, you know, that that is, is how we saw autism, really, you know. Yes, yeah, uh, so you're, you're absolutely right um, that, that there were these other factors um, contributing to what the main challenges or rather looking at the other way around they were external things compacting and exacerbating and in my case derailing development because my trajectory was already shaky anyway but that did have a profound effect on my language and development so by, the, by the time you oh i seem to be echoing a little bit um by the time you had found speech you know mm. um you've mentioned learning difficulties and you know, sometimes um, on the autism spectrum, there is learning difficulties, but sometimes there aren't because it's just a different way of being wired, a different way. It's a neurodevelopmental thing. But you're, you know, you're a very bright person and you're, you know, you're articulate and everything else. Um, at what point, if it happened in, in the schooling, did you sort of catch up or start reading or start communicating or show that you were articulate and that you were bright i mean did that happen or not i don't think it ha happened completely um but to give an example when i was in year one i could i couldn't uh process um books very well um so, so the, a teacher would read me a book and maybe i could echo it back but it wasn't internalizing yeah. um and the teacher said i don't know what to do with him and sadly she said that to another parent rather than going to maybe another teacher or head teacher um so around year four when functional speech did come um it felt foreign to what I was already used to or developmentally what I was doing. So it's kind of switching between sensing world, the pattern, theme and feel world. So that uh, was your own language in a way, wasn't it? It was, yes. And it, it's, uh, that's a term coined by Donna Williams of sort of pattern. It was pattern themed and felt as opposed to be uh, a, a, a interpretive. So all my human emotions had linchpins. It's just that they, were were funneled from things that were considered unusual so when i started to speak functionally it felt very difficult and it felt labored and it was stilted um and the other condition that i had was, was exposure anxiety so that further impacted um when i had functional speech i actually wanted to go back to not because exposure anxiety was uh, a nervous system response to not uh, to a negative response by the way to be to having a sense of self being made aware of so it's almost like uh, embarrassment but turn up to a thousand so is that anything like um so because I'm a psychotherapist and I deal with phobia, 
Mm. And and some some therapy is really bad with ex with that type of exposure therapy. For instance, spiders. Now I wouldn't suddenly get spiders in the room and 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 get books of spiders and do all this kind of stuff. I wouldn't do that to help somebody with a fear of spiders. But for you, when you were being taught the language was it just too much you were you were getting there was just too much coming at you about language that it was making you anxious Is it a there, was like a, there, there was a mixture of current information processing challenges so the fact that i still had and do have now a residual language processing disorder the fact that that was there but to a much more um severe degree the fact that i had visual perceptual disorders um, i was object blind meaning blind context blind so that was all to do with visual verbal association and the fact that i had no visual memory so i had amphantasia so i don't have a mind's eye so i was tactile associative so that's all the information processing stuff then you've got the environmental things that i've mentioned such as trauma and then the exposure anxiety was um the 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 fight flight and freeze response the head trigger response to making my other people making me aware of myself so if anybody made me aware of myself i would detach would dissociate and i dissociate primarily um for two reasons uh firstly to do with language processing i was actually trauma by language uh, yeah. people speaking to me and that's something that is seems quite peculiar but if you if you lived in my world it would it would make perfect sense and then the other reason was um exposure anxiety so a reaction to exposure anxiety so when um, you say that, can I just um, put something in there? There's two things um, that just um, jump into my head then that are quite, yes. um, that you, you, you might agree with, I'm not sure. But one of them is um, uh, pathological uh, demand um, avoidance is in, you know, you're talking about language, but it, it's all language, but would it also incorporate anybody asking you to do something would just be impossible to do no it wasn't it wasn't it wasn't the the fact that i was triggered by demands i was triggered by anybody making me aware of my own existence so give me an example of a teacher and what they would say to you coming up to me saying my name being directly confrontational being direct with their language what, what, what I would have needed, which I've learned now, speaking to Donna and understanding about exposure anxiety, and it ports over quite nicely the strategies with uh, pathological demand avoidance, ODD, reactive attachments, yeah, yeah. is a more indirect confrontational approach, yeah, which would have, what would that would have done for me at that point in time, it, it would have freed up space for me to take in information rather than my nervous system constantly being on alert and constantly um, on fire, effectively, it's constantly being struck. I, I really understand, I, I, you know, it's a big and complex subject, but I understand what you're saying and we'll come on to this because that's almost like my final question I, I ask my guests is yeah. you know, how can that be better in schools? But I'll ask you about that later. But yes. the, other thing, the other thing that you're saying though, which is um, I, 
my journey all started really because I was getting clients coming in who were dissociating, shutting down, melting mm. down, hypersensitive, crying, angry, and doing all of this. And I was just, I hadn't seen it before. And it was during COVID. And I was thinking, this is incredible. And that sent me on a journey to polyvagal theory, you know, because I was very interested in Stephen Porges. And uh, do you know about polyvagal theory? No, if you explain. Just very briefly, Stephen Porges, it's to do with the vagus nerve. So it's, um, if you get to the point of fight, flight, and freeze, if you can't fight and you can't get away from it, and freezing doesn't work as well, you can, you can get so anxious about it that you just go into like a death fame. And a really good way of explaining this is if there's a fox and a rabbit and the fox catches the rabbit, the rabbit will, it knows it's going to be eaten and it doesn't want to feel pain. So it floods itself with endorphins. Its breathing goes right down. Its heart rate goes right down and it goes into a completely flop situation because it just doesn't want to feel pain of being eaten and death. So as mammals started to progress and evolve more, mm. we developed our own way of doing this. And it's to do with the vagus nerve. So the top part of the vagus nerve, which is at the back beneath the cerebellum, that deals with when you go into panic, all the breathing and the heart and all that yes. side of it. And, um, and there's another part of the polyvagus, uh, um, the vagus nerve, which goes down, that deals with the stomach. So... Um, when uh, saber-toothed tigers were chasing us when we were, you know, millions of years or hundreds of thousands of years ago, we would do two things. We would faint and we would lose our bowels so that by the time the tiger got to us, he'd think, well, that's dead. That's not much fun. And it smells awful. So I'll go away, giving us enough time to run away, like with a lion and an antelope. So... It, so I, it's fascinating. It, it, I find polyvagal very, very fascinating and it's similar. So that's why a lot of people who, who have high stress and in autism as well, it's because they're constantly stressed. Their body is constantly traumatized. It's a bit like complex trauma that Paul Mikulev talks about on um, YouTube. He's quite good as well. Yes. Uh, but, you know, uh, f for you, for instance, if, I, if I'm on the right track, is that you know you i feel so, it must have been awful you know you're constantly at school in this situation where everything is so so triggering and so so stressful yeah and it I mean, shuts it, you it, down and melts you down well yeah the i had no escape so from the age of three to 16 it was constant bullying so it wasn't just bullying at school it was bullying in my home environment my peer group adults um, where I live and it was only until age 30 that I had a break from bullying at work so you can kind of do the math there of how long that went on for but the way in which I got round that is I thanked them every one of them for treating me the way they did because it gave me a framework of how not to treat people and totally it gave me with you from a from a person who I, I'm not going to tell you my story because yours is much more interesting. But very bullied, very badly bullied because I'm autistic and ADHD as well. So I was just causing so much havoc, really, and people were being horrible to me. And it it, it an off makes you strong, doesn't it, Paul? Yes, it does. I mean, you you have to understand the psychology of why people behave the way they do towards you. 
and it's absolutely to do with them, their biases, their uh, internalizations, their rationalizations, their caregivers, their environment, their core beliefs, uh, all has an impact on how one projects. So a lot of the people who uh, at that stage in their life who came across me and other people similar to me, um, they would do these things because they are unhappy. And all I wish them is well, wellness. I don't think about them all the time because that's inappropriate, but I do wish them um, wellness, contentment, and to be the best version of themselves. So I don't hold bitterness towards people. That I doesn't love mean that. That, I really doesn't love that. that doesn't mean that I'm unaware of how people behave, and it doesn't mean that people's behaviour doesn't have an effect on me currently. Yeah. What that does mean is that I let go, and letting go is the most powerful thing you can do, because all you've got from birth to death is yourself. And if you don't like yourself or have some sort of uh, framework where you're, you're living perceived self rather than actual self, which is a paradox which I think more people go through than they care to admit, yes. um, then you're living through the lens of someone's idea of you rather than being who you really are. And I, and I, and I really like that you know what you're saying and if i if you don't mind if i just come in on that because uh you know one of the things with double empathy and also the thing about sharing stories so that you understand and everything else mm -hmm. is um you know I'm, I'm writing my autobiography um and yeah. uh, um purely because i've re i've just rewritten my whole life and all my life i thought i was mentally ill and i wasn't Not people I just, do and i just <laughs> yes. was autistic and adhd and the thing was, is I thought I had to forgive all these people and forgive myself. And I don't even have to do that. I just understand now. I understand why yes. these things happened. And I understand why I, excuse the French, piss people off. And why, um, why things didn't work. And, and the, the weight that gets lifted off your shoulders when you realise, oh, that's why. You know, it just, it just changes the narrative and, uh, and you, you freedom. You don't have to be successful. You only have to be happy. Yeah. Success is an arbitrary hierarchical fallacy, which people fall into all the time. Mm. They think that success is out there when it's in here. Yeah. And that is why the Western world has, has made people crazy because it's all built on this arbitrary construct of being better, being better than someone, being grander than someone, having more money than someone. And that is why people are disillusioned. One of the most unhappiest places to live is London. Oh, absolutely. So and, and particularly, as well. particularly the sensory deprivation. And I spoke to a gentleman yeah. many years ago who was doing studies around mental health in these in, in, in London and these communities that are very dense. Yes, yeah. And um, and the sensory deprivation alone from the subways, you know, the underground yeah, was yeah, awful. Yeah. I mean, I love them, but I love them because I get so euphoric with colours and lights yeah, and shimmer and shine, and I have to try and distract myself but for some people that because for me it was it was exciting partly because 
I'm going to do a speech or I'm going to a school or I'm going up north. It was a through lane. But for some people, that is everyday life. That is mundane. They have to get up at five o'clock and then take take that route to work for 40 years or more. And it's very, very demoralizing. So I think that we have to wonder why um, in America and in the UK and in the so-called developed world, developed world, which I think is a slightly condescending and offensive term, it's implying oh, yeah. that there are other places that aren't developed, um, actually have lost lots of things that we could learn uh, from the African continent and Africans um, from the tribes um, from the Aborigines and from the Native American Indians. And the, the, they, if there is a God, and I don't want to get religious, but the, if there yeah. is a God, they were probably closest to it. And, and just on that, that's so um, fascinating and very, very interesting. Um, I'm a human givens therapist and, um, you know, I take what I need from my model of therapy. I don't have to do 100% because maybe no. some bits that I don't completely um, see eye to eye to. But one of the things that they said, and it does make sense to me, is, you know, we are human beings. We're, we're a species, you know, we're you know we are a species so i'm not into hierarchy and i'm very into justice and i wish people would like look after each other a lot more but on population and on being within places we're not really supposed to have more than 150 people around us because we're nomads and we we're supposed to be tribal and although we connect there's too many people on top of each other and it's not supposed to be like that. And it's made us all crazy um, because as you say, there's far too much stimuli coming in and, and there's lots of other things as well, of course, yes. and materialism and institutions, but hierarchy is quite a, a big thing because um, I could quite easily, if you were the queen or if you were somebody else, you know, I would, ha- I would be talking to you exactly the same because that's the way my mind works. I, I, you know, we all have the same voice to speak and, you know, we should be able to talk to each other, but it does make it, dif- it does make it difficult. Um, I want to make sure I get in lots of really interesting things with you, Paul. Um, so if I may, um, you know, you, cu- you, you exude strength from a lot of adversity that I know from just talking to you now that you would have experienced. But um, I would like to ask you, um, how has your mental health um, been affected? Um, you know, I mean, the most, the bits that you remember the most because of your neurodivergence? Um, I would say in the late 2000s when um, I attempted suicide and that was around 2007. And that was a mixture of things. That was a mixture to do with the uh, environment where I was living, uh, uh, which was kind of worrying because my mother noted to me around a week ago or two, I think a week, give or take, that actually four people in my village have have killed themselves, um, which is rather worrying. Um, uh, All men and hung themselves. Oh, so. And why? Why do you think that's um, it? I don't know. I mean, she had a theory about one of the, the gentlemen, but it was just a theory that he, he may have been gay um, and he, he, he hung himself in the woods um, near here um, alone. Yeah. 
you know, and it oh. is a lo- and it, and I think it sounds obvious, but it is a lonely process, isn't it? Yeah, because yeah. you, you know, I think people forget that that you are cutting yourself off in every sense of the word, aren't you? You're you're cutting your mind almost into you're working on a different level because you're committed to doing this one act um and that was and I left a suicide note in the because I I planned to do it in my bedroom and I left a suicide note I was planning to hand myself from the 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 railing of um, the, the curtains and then for some reason something hit me which thank goodness it did and I just well, literally, went. did something hit you? Literally, no, no, no. I think in my uh, well, my mind, you had a thought or a, a, a something to, to take me out of okay. what sadly yeah. happens because if you're so driven, yes, oh, you're, you're in trance, uh, yes, yeah, it's a peculiar experience. But I went yeah. back to bed, thankfully, but yeah. obviously, it upset my parents deeply because my mother found the note. Of course. Uh, yes. So that was. And you're around... very close to your family. Uh, do you still have both your mum and dad? Luckily, yes. I mean, I almost lost my my dad in 2011, and my mum um, in 2019. So I'm thankful for them to still be here. When that happens, can I just ask that? Because uh, when that happens, because I nearly lost my mum in April. She was mm. in hospital for three weeks. When that happens. Um, how does that change the way you think about your parents' mortality? Um, well, with my mother, it was it was a completely different context. So it happened all of a sudden. Um, so she got diagnosed with a condition called thrombosis of the vena cava. So basically, she had a clot from her heart all the way down to her liver. They couldn't believe it. And it was also trailing into her kidneys. So she she was at risk of dying, obviously. She was at risk of having an embolism, the the thrombus breaking off. Mm. Um, She almost died three times. Um, She had um, lung failure in one of the operations. Uh, Very serious. uh, Yeah, and she, yes, it was. Yeah, she's intensive care for two weeks. And I have to give... It to the team um, who were around her and all these very poorly people because you had to walk in and you saw them. You yeah, know, it wasn't yeah, just yeah. my mum. Yeah. Um, they were extremely dedicated and actually I had a very positive experience in terms of staff. Well, and I do. With, with the NHS, I think they're absolutely incredible. And the number of different times been in hospital um, is one of those things. As long as you're told straightforward honestly openly yes. and you're not condescended to and they say like with my dad they said look he's got pneumonia in two lungs he's gonna die so I said okay four days in hospital I just wanted to look to know what he was going to look like when he died and how his heart was going to be and I went into practical mode right mm. up until his last breath but how's your mum now yeah she's still recovering but she's um she's slowly recovering in the sense mental health there's I think there's PTSD there 
um, because surprisingly, with the procedure, she must have had to. Have yeah, her uh, uh, breathing's changed, but it's not a literal breathing. It's from her throat because Far um, and I were there when they took the the, oh, the plastic horrible. out yeah. of her throat, and I and for when she was at home, she used to make this sort of wheeze sound yes. from her throat and yes. I said I think that's to do with your unconscious mind yes either remembering the the the, the lung failure or both, potentially both or remembering the removal of the tube because she breathes from her throat and I do I have said yeah. you you breathe differently now have you read about that um since covid that um a lot of the people who were ventilated, it was a lot of the people that ventilated have got PTSD because of the the actual equipment that was in there. Yes, boat. it and, doesn't and, surprise me one bit, uh, not at all, because it's well, artificial. Oh, it's awful. And But PTSD after lots of procedures is something I see quite a lot. And uh, I'm and sure. Thank you for telling me that. And I'm glad that, you're, that your mum is recovering. Yes, I she just, is. Um, I, I just want to make sure, because we get an hour, and, uh, and I just want to make sure if it's okay with you. Um, there was a bit, um, hang on, let me see, where are we on time? Okay, because I want to talk about the wonderful stuff that you're doing as well. But you were uh, misdiagnosed, and um, I was as well. And actually... <laughs> with lots of um, counselling, you know, which was incorrect as well. Um, I now realise now that I'm autistic. But how were you misdiagnosed? Um, and uh, what were they misdiagnosing you with before they oh. finally came up with what you agreed with? I, I did, I, this is where I, I kind of go a bit differently. I, di I didn't consider them misdiagnoses because if a human being is pushed this is my own experience i'm yes. not speaking for all because misdiagnosis yeah. is valid so i don't i just yeah. as i carry on with this i'm i'm yeah. i'm just contextualizing my own story um so we all have between four to six personality types i mean human beings and if those personality types are pushed push push pushed they go into the disordered extremes so I I don't disagree with the diagnoses of, of borderline and schizotypal personality disorder because at that point in time I was so ill um, that, that that the environmental impact the um, the barrage of of different things happening in my life at that time meant that I was very ill. And I also had psychosis for a brief time. But that and can be that can come all, on with terrible stress, can't it? Yeah, and auditory hallucinations. Yes. Um, so it wasn't the fact that it was a misdiagnosis in that sense. Yeah. However, the conclusion was a misdiagnosis because I had those, but then I think the last meeting I had with the mental health professional, he said I had Asperger traits with a complex personality. And it was quite arbitrary and... Yeah, apologised. Yeah, and not only that, it, was, it didn't take me anywhere. Yeah. I mean, the first thing I said was, what was that? And he couldn't really answer. Um, I read it in a book. <laughs> yes, yeah. He he was an old to yeah. he was an old fashioned 
professional. Mm. Um, and I don't mean this in a derogatory way. He was probably coming to the end of his career. Yeah. He must have been in his 60s yes, um, yeah. when he saw me. So all that lens yeah. of which he was looking at me through was dated. Um, but that's so, um, I find it incredibly laudable and... And, and really, the way that you speak, uh, if you don't mind me saying, uh, well, considering that you don't, when you were younger, you couldn't stand sort of people sort of talking about you. But, you know, the way that you are so understanding, I mean, you know, it, it's Well, I, I didn't want speak. to become bitter and twisted. And I, and I totally agree. And, and uh, you know, and I don't, I don't either. And I think that's absolutely fantastic. But this, this leads quite well onto the kind of stuff that you're doing now. Um, when we were talking about mental health and uh, something I saw on the YouTube, which was really great with Anna Kennedy, because um, I have my own ways of doing mindfulness and, uh, and I don't do the sort of typical mindfulness because actually if you lay me down on the ground and I'm saying ohm and you're making me very, very quiet and I get too emotional and I get angry and I don't like it. So I have my own way of doing mindfulness um, and you have your ways of doing mindfulness as well. How do you do mindfulness? What are your tips? Well, I think I did. I, I think I mentioned in that, that workshop what works for me is, is poetry and creative writing, um, creating things that have an emotional connection. And I don't, I have pre-attentive thinking, which isn't unique to autism, but it may garner it because of the information processing challenges I have. So I don't always consciously think what I'm going to write, uh, particularly emotive writing, which seems to come from another place. Um, and also the same with some of my illustrations, they're just drawn. I may have a basic framework of an idea, but it just happens. Who's and attracted that, to that when they read your work? What sort of comments and reviews do you get as far as, you know, because that way of writing is, is so organic and, and really natural and it comes from such an interesting place. I'd be very interested to know the people that love your work. You know, what, what sort of things do they say about it when they read your books? Um, I, I, what I hope, and to galvanise lots of people's views into one observation of what they may think of me is that I was true to myself and authentic. Yeah. Um, and I don't really mind what people say about me in the broader sense, because you always have to go back to who you really are so I don't necessarily want people to listen to me, the person. I just want people to remember what I said. Yes, yeah, and that, and that is, yeah, I, I, totally, I totally agree with you. And uh, the, the, the sad thing is, and I, I just find that in, sorry, but I do find this in the neurotypical world a lot, is that people just aren't honest and they're not feeling their feelings and they're not being open and they're, they get very angry and, and upset and, and you know, it, it's quite difficult. When I'm speaking to somebody who is wired in the same way that I'm wired, we, have, we seem to have a much deeper conversation and it, it goes through a different type of layering 
it's and you come away feeling full you know i i'm not very great at superficial conversations and i something that is quite typical of small talk you know of autism is small talk i don't I'm not really great at small talk either you know do you do you prefer a deeper level conversation when you're with another human mm, i it it depends so i what i like about people is their energy so it's before conversation even starts and um, the system of sensing um, this this symbiotic sort of way of being with people. Um, all babies have it because um, the nervous system is naked, so that you you merge with people quite easily. And because of the information processing challenges and the compaction of the information processing challenge, men it freed. Um, the system to be more of that of one who is sensing um, rather than interpreting and then if you live in a system of sensing um, everybody is open because you can see them for who they really are you don't need to strip any layers away you don't need to peel any layers or draw any curtains back because everyone is there in their raw form. So it's emergence and I merge with people's trauma and that's happened a few times where I have to unpick, is it mine or is it someone else's? And um, some people could call that telepathic or psychic ability. I don't know if it is fully in the literal sense, but I, I do believe that people who sense more um, and that could be non autism as well. Um, it is quite common within. Uh, oh, sorry, it's going again. It is. Uh, I'm just reading uh, uh, from different places, though, that, um, you know, there are obviously the, the, the five senses and the sixth sense. But I do think that a lot of us are very highly sensitive and we do have this intuition, this perception, this ability to. You know know what people are thinking before they've opened their mouths and what they're feeling and to really sort of be part of that it's i unknown, think i like that as well unknown knowingness yes and if you work with people uh, who have profound information processing challenges they're more likely to be in the in the system of sensing and and yeah. um, that leads on very well i think to um you know, Ollie and his superpowers. Um, I saw this, um, oh gosh, where did I, I'm not sure where I saw it, but I went onto the website because I was trying to find out more about you so that, you know, obviously we, we could have a yes. chat. And Alison Knowles is, um, she's just such an incredible lady. She has a background of neuro-linguistic program, uh, neuro-linguistic programming and, and psychotherapy. And yes. just her whole, her whole being and her aura and everything about her is amazing. But she's come, she's come up with such a fantastic method of, of being, of working with children and, and having the boxes and the, just tell me about it. Um, if, if you would, in, in about five minutes, give me a really good feel. <laughs> Of what you're doing with Ollie and the Superpowers and what it is. Well, I first met Alison a few years ago at one of Anna Kennedy's um, events, one of the expos pre COVID. 
um, and I've done I've done some training for her team. And as we were talking at the expo during a break, and uh, uh, she's with one of her colleagues, um, what came about was actually a sharing of of ideas of the way human beings work, of the way the mind works, the way mental health works. And what uh, Alison has got, and it's a great gift, is she's able to take in and almost remember on some level, because adults forget, what it's like to be a child, what it's like to be a, a young person. And as that filters through into the programs where she goes round, young adults, um, young children, teenagers, etc., what she's trying to do is break the curse of children coming out of secondary school education with mental health challenges that they wouldn't have had. So that, that's across the board. Um, I believe the worrying statistics around 70% of teenagers come out of education with mental health problems. So her goal is to get people and specifically children, young minds, able to understand their emotions, emotional regulation and ultimately understand themselves. Um, and that is why it's going round the country. That is why she has been to America. That is why her training programs are getting more and more, um, not notoriety, because that's the wrong word. Well, they're recognition. Getting, they're getting recognition and being embraced yeah. by the schools. And it is wonderful to talk to children anyway. I remember doing a speech about autism and I brought up about the system of sensing, and because they're closer to that anyway, the children completely understood what I was on about. So that was just an intriguing kind of observation that kind of marries up with what Alison has observed with children and, and mental health around young people. And that Ollie, Ollie, and his superpowers is in effect a, a movement, a, a movement of change, of changing people's views of children. And how to help them and communicate with them. Yes. Instead of everybody being the same and and you know noticing and, and it's it's about trying it's talking about how they feel without it being, you know, like if you ask an autistic person how are you? Well, it's just such a ridiculous thing to ask because it's too big and it means so much, but she's found a way of, of having these boxes and having a communication method that lets people in and lets people describe their emotions. Tell me about that. Well, the way from talking to her at the expo, her whole ethos is, is that people are people first. So before you get into the practicalities and the theory and even the logistics of, of what you're doing, it was very clear that Alison um, wanted to bring back this element of humanity to children, that they are not walking 
labels, that they are not to be defined by boxes. Um, we, we had a conversation recently um, where we, we were discussing that about these, these boxes and how sometimes, and not to offend people, but it's true, um, governing bodies around counties um, are failing children. Um, there, are, and there are CAMs, uh, not to name people, and I don't want to, you know, give CAMs a, a black name or a darkened kind yeah. of, um, rep, you know, rep, representation or reputation. But sadly, there are practitioners within CAMs, because that's the way one should word it. There are some practitioners within CAMs who are failing children mm -hmm. in time. Yeah. They're either not listening to them or they have like the mental health, uh, adult mental health practitioner I went to, potentially a fixed view yeah. of how to talk, how to manage and how to cure, quote, quote, yeah. the, the, the um, ailments. Um, so what she's suggesting is give the power back to the people. It sounds almost um, liberating, but it is because if you teach children that they can take ownership of themselves, wouldn't that be better? Wouldn't that be better if we had a society where people were not clogging up the adult mental health services? They were not clogging up CAMs. Um, we've got to be really forward thinking, and I think that's where. Ali, you know, just is forward thinking. She's thinking ahead. She's thinking of the next generation of children. But she is, she is part of a machine, I think. Oh, sorry, the sound went a bit funny. She is very, fun, she's fantastic. And there's other advocates. You are a, a really good advocate. The, the, the um, lady I spoke to this morning, she is as well. And there's so many of a, well, I'm, I'm a newbie, but I'm going to do the best I can from 56 to the end of my life to try and do that. And there is a movement and there is a sea change. And it's, I, I seem to have arrived at a place where there is change in it and it will happen. And I think it can happen within a community like neurodivergency because we're not scared of talking and we're blunt and we're open and we're honest. And as long as we're not pitchforks at dawn and we're we're trying to talk to everybody and understand everybody because I'm not going to go to any group and people start telling me how I talk and about how I how I process the information and, and the words I use. I'm sorry but I'm too old and ugly to do that. I need to say it how it comes out of my mouth and it's and it's done in a you know, I don't want to annoy anyone, but I can't keep changing my language every two seconds. I think what, what you're saying is absolutely right. We do almost need to go back to basics and to talk to parents about coping skills and go right back to basics about getting children to feel. I was repressed as a child and that's why I became a rebel because my family were, um, my mum and dad who I absolutely adore, but it was, it was uh, do what you're told, uh, you know, keep quiet and, and uh, you know, speak when you're spoken to. And it was a bit of a Victorian way. But I think, you know, babies and children were just mini adults. We just need guiding and we, and we need to make, we need to help our, our human beings be who they are 
planning to be um, as individuals and an identity. And um, I you know, just as if you were to sum up um, in, in, you know, literally a couple of sentences as we sum up and come to the end of this really fascinating talk, how would you like to see society encompassing neurodivergency and helping humans in the future? Well, to ultimately see them as people. It's as simple as that. If you, if you do not see um, uh, others as people, then there's no chance for change. If you see people as human beings, as, as autonomous um, entities that have their own thoughts, feelings, uh, opinions, views, then you're on the road to um, change. But change cannot be met without people in mind. So in other words, you, you can put all the, the, the legislation in place and you can say you can't do this and you can't say that. But um, it, it really is uh, about being calm and waiting because you can't force anybody to think the way you do. You offer it and then they have to internalize it, but it's their choice to internalize it. You can't make anybody, um, uh, you can't make anybody uh, enlightened. And it can't, and, and, and it would be really good if it wasn't too subjective and politicized. You know, if, mm. there's, if there's more people just, standing in in the neutral zone and and sharing their experiences and talking at a calm level with each yes. other and then other people might look at those people and think that's really interesting what they're saying um, i think i'm just going to go and talk go and sit with them and hear what they're saying because it doesn't yes. sound quite good yeah that's correct you you never um protest in a way which makes you appear bitter you must protest in a way uh, in which you know what the end result is because you can't keep protesting all the time there's got to be change hasn't there yeah there's got to be an end result you've got to have an end game an end result a, a, a finite thing that you want a goal and if you don't have a goal and you're just walking around aimlessly then it's never going to work. You have to have a goal. You do, you do have to have a goal. And Paul, I mean, I, I really would love to invite you back again because my, my aim with the podcast is not to have thousands of people coming on to talk at all. It's to have really, you know, a, a group of some people who, you know, who talk in this sort of way, I suppose. And there'll, there'll be times perhaps when I'd really like to hear what you say about maybe slightly more um, targeted, you know, topics, you know, and mm. get your opinion about that. But I'm, I, I do thank you absolutely for the time that you've spent today with me. And, and I'm absolutely sure that there's going to be an awful lot of people who are really going to look forward to hearing what you said and, and sharing your experiences in your life today. And um, just, you know, thank you so much. And, and the podcast will be out in, um, I'm hoping by the end of July, because I want to get everyone together and then put them out as one. Yeah. And, um, and I'll put um, 
what I'll do is I'll ask you separately on an email or LinkedIn or whatever. If you can give me all your links, I'll put them in the show notes if that's okay. And yes, yeah, that would be great. Yes, that would be wonderful. And I really wish you all the best with Ollie and his superpowers and all the other fantastic projects and conferences and everything that you do moving forward. You're, you're, you're such a, an incredible person for, for our community. And thank you again. Thank you very much. Take care. Yeah, Have a good summer. Care. Yeah, and you. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you very much for listening to the Neurodivergence and Mental Health podcast. Links and resources will be at the end in the show notes. I very much look forward to meeting you again. Thanks for listening. Bye.